audience. Good to see you all here, and it's uh, an honor to welcome all of you and to say a special word of welcome to any of you who are guests with us this morning, especially if this is your first time here. Uh, we hope that you are already experiencing the presence of God as we worship Him together uh, in this place. So we're honored by your presence and would love to welcome you back. So if you're feeling led in that direction, I hope you'll come back next Sunday or whenever you're able. And if you have questions about the church, you can reach out to me or Lori or uh, any of the friends around you. We'd love to speak with you about what God's doing here. But we're glad and grateful that you're with us. A uh, little story to start off this morning. About 1,600 years ago, maybe 1,700 years ago, is the tail end of the 300s A.D. and the beginning part of the 400s A.D., there was a uh, leader in the early Christian church in that era, and his name was Jerome. Any of you heard of the early Christian leader Jerome? Anybody? Some of you have? Very good. You know your church history. Uh, what Jerome did was he was the one who translated the Bible from the original languages of Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. He translated those original languages into Latin. And so that translation, which was known as the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, was the translation that was used by the church for the next thousand or so years. So as the story goes, Jerome had a dream one night. And in that dream, Jesus paid Jerome a visit. And so Jerome, in a dream, went around. He collected all of his money, and he gave his money as a gift for Jesus. And Jesus, in his dream, said, Jerome, I don't want your money. That's not why I came. And so then Jerome went around. He collected all of his possessions, all of his belongings, and he brought those, and he laid them before Jesus as well. And Jesus said, Jerome, I don't want your possessions. That's not why I came. And so Jerome continued searching and searching this way and that way for anything and everything he could bring to give to Jesus. And every time Jesus said, Jerome, I don't want that or I don't want this. That's not why I came. And so finally in this dream, Jerome asked Jesus, what can I give you? What is it that you want? And Jesus replied very simply, I want you to give me your sin. That's why I came. I came to take away your sin. What a dream. What a beautiful dream and reminder. And that very thing has played itself out in every Christian believer through the years who have tried and tried to do this or that for Jesus, to, to give to Jesus what we think he wants, to, to do for Jesus what we think will earn us our way or win us our way into his heart, only to realize in the end that Jesus' love is not because of us. It's not because of who we are and what we have done or not done. Jesus' love is in spite of us, what he wants from us and what he came to take away from us is our sin. And it's been that way since the very start, from the very beginning of, of mankind. In God's perfect design, he made Adam as a representative of man, whose being and whose nature would be carried forward for all of his posterity and all the generations and all of his descendants from that point forward. It was the picture of perfection and purity and peace and all good things with Adam and Eve at the pinnacle of that goodness as the image bearers of God. But they weren't puppets. God gave them choice, the blessing and the gift of choice with one prohibition. We're going to read that this morning from uh, the book of Genesis in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible with you, 
I would encourage you to open that to the first few pages of the Bible. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 15, 16, and 17, and then we'll flip to chapter 3, and we'll be back and forth through chapter 3 throughout the morning. So you might want to keep your Bible open. The first, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was, in essence, the knowledge and the understanding, the full spectrum of everything contained and possessed only in the mind of God himself. And so to seek after it would be to assert the self over God. It would be to claim to know all things apart from God, and it would be to decide or determine for the self what is good and what is evil, what is right and wrong, instead of leaving that up to God's good design and intent. And so we're going to read how the rest of this unfolds through the morning. And as we do that, this is what I want to ask of you. I want to ask you to put yourself in the place of Adam and Eve. And so as we take a look at at how they act, how they react, what they do, what they don't do, think about how you act and how you react, what you do and what you don't do. Because all this that we're going to read through this morning, it plays itself out in every single one of us every single day. All right? So we're going to start with uh, chapter 3. Verse 1, we're going to go back to, um, to Genesis, chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Revealing himself through this crafty serpent, manifesting himself through this serpent, Satan begins to put doubt in Eve's mind. Did he actually say that? Did he really say, you shall not? He inserted a question where there should be certainty, and thus he was undermining the authority and the good intent of God. And think about the focus of that question. The focus of this question is on that one prohibition of God. Instead of on all the gracious, generous provision of God. The prohibition instead of the provision. You think about it. God gave them all of everything. All that was good and right and perfect. And he gave them the blessing of authority in and over all of that. All that provision, though, was minimized by focusing on the one prohibition. And you think about how that plays itself out in your day-to-day. I mean, when you get all wrapped up in yourself. Does anybody ever do that? Yeah, all of us, right? When you get all wrapped up in yourself, so often what happens is that you you forget about all that God has given or, or you forget about all that God has done and the focus becomes only on the one thing that's pulling you in and winning you over. The one thing that maybe you don't have or the one thing maybe you can't have or that you shouldn't have and then it becomes the one and only thing that you want. Catch yourself. Catch yourself this week if you start to question God's provision. If you start to to forget about or if you start to take for granted all that God has given and all that God has done. Remember the gracious, generous provision of God. 
Back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve knew what God had said. But I don't know if you noticed, she tacked on an extra line there. Eve said that God said, neither shall you touch it. If you look back at what God said, that was not included there. It's almost like she's rolling her eyes in resentment, saying, well, God said we can't eat of this tree, and you know what? We can't even touch that tree. Like she's mumbling, like she's murmuring under her breath. How rude of God to put this kind of restriction on us, right? And she's, in doing that, she's throwing the balance way out of balance. And I'm talking about the balance between God and man. The, the way it should be is God up here and man down here. That's the right balance. God up here and, and man down here. That's how God designed it, and that's how God intends it. And not for our harm, not to be a burden, but to be a blessing and for our good. That's the right balance. And yet in the story of Genesis and the story of mankind and the story of our own lives, so often we throw that balance out of balance, don't we? I mean, if God's here and man's here, that might look like it's balanced, but that's out of balance. If God's down here and man's up here, that's way out of balance. God up here, man down here. That's the good intent and design of God. And then verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. There it is. That's the heart of temptation. That's the heart of, of sin. And when it comes down to it, it's the heart of every man, woman, and child. You'll not surely die. You'll be like God. You be God. You be in charge of you. Trust in you. Depend on you. You decide for yourself what's good and evil. What's right and wrong? What's yes and no? Don't worry about God. You be God and worry about you. And again, that's throwing the balance way off balance right there. And so back to uh, verses 6 and 7. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and it was to be desired. How does that play out in your day-to-day? That is, that is the earthly appeal and attraction of temptation and sin. So often something will catch your eyes, and then once it catches your eyes, it will go on and it will catch and it will hook your heart, and then ultimately it will lead you down that destructive and deadly path of disobedience. The way it unfolded there in the garden is the way it's unfolded ever since. It's doubt that leads to denial, denial that leads to disobedience, and disobedience that ultimately leads to destruction and to death. It's played itself out in every heart and every life ever since. We are literally slaves to sin. We're slaves to our own sin. 
Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that the image of God is not still in us. It is. The image of God is still in us. We, all of us, have so much capacity for good and so much capacity for relationships with God and with one another. But every bit of all that in every one of us is corrupted, flawed, and, and, and stained and scarred by the reality of origin sin. So these next uh, several weeks, as, as we lead up to the climax and culmination of this time with the joy and celebration of Easter, we are going to be remembering that reality, remembering the reality of the way things are without the grace of God, remembering the reality of the way things are without the cross, the way things are without the empty Easter grave. The way things are without the gift of, of being rescued and renewed by Jesus. And the way things are without hope. Because that's exactly what we are without him. Hopeless. Hopeless and hellbound without Jesus. With Jesus, hopeful, full of hope and heaven bound. Simple and straightforward as that, friends. No watering it down, no beating around a bush. Some of you might be thinking, Jason, you really mean that? Do you really believe that, Jason? I promise you I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't. And others of you might be thinking, is it really all that matters? It is the way you lead and live your life? And can a person really lead their life well enough with Jesus or without Jesus, isn't that really all that matters is that you lead life as a good person. That's not biblical and it's not Christian because think about it. A person might be good, very, very good even when compared to another person or even when compared to a lot of other people, but the measure of goodness is not another person. The measure of goodness is not a whole lot of other people. The measure of goodness is God and God alone. I want to give you another way to think about that. I have, um, well, first of all, let me just ask you to take uh, just a, a, a guess at the, the temperature, the core temperature in uh, the center of the sun. Anybody want to just throw out a wild and crazy number in degrees Fahrenheit? 10,000 degrees, that's hot, right? Yeah, Bob Crawford, 10,000. Anybody want to take another guess? 10 million, that's even more hot. There you go. Any other guesses? It's almost, how, somebody, I think somebody said billion. 2 billion, not quite. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now, to put that in perspective, I have a safety pin here with me. Can anybody see this safety pin that I'm holding in my hands? Right here in the front, a few of you can. So if you can't see the safety pin, you can't see the tip of the safety pin, right? But there, there's a head of that pin, and it's very, very small. And uh, there's a little prick at the very top. Now think about this. If just that little head of this pin we're heated up to 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Anything and everything, anyone and everything would be obliterated, annihilated, destroyed, wiped out within 1,000 miles of here. If that little head of the pin, 27 million degrees. It's amazing. And, and, and we think we're about to wilt when we walk outside and it's 90 degrees, right? It just goes to show 
there's hot, and then there's hot. And think about this. There's holy, and then there's holy, and there's good, and there might even be very, very good, and then there's God. And that's not me, and it's not you. And we need to know that, as many and hopefully most of us do. We need to humbly confess it before God, to humbly acknowledge our sin and our sinfulness in the presence of his holiness, and to cry out for grace and for mercy to help us out of our helplessness. Don't water down your sinfulness, friends. Don't try to cover it. Don't try to hide it. God knows it anyway. Remember what we said at the beginning. The reason Jesus came was to take away your sin. Maybe you've heard uh, a little line. It goes something like this. The more I get to know other people, the more I love my dog. Maybe some of you said that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Some of you may have said that or thought that a time or two. The more I get to know other people, the more I love my dog. I do love my dogs. Think about it with a slight little twist. If you change a couple of words up in there, the more I get to know myself, the more I love my God. I'll let that sit with you for a minute. The more I get to know myself, the more I get to know Jason Whitener, the more I love my God. Because I realize more and more the depths of my own sin from which he's rescued me. The more and more I come to realize the earthly and the eternal death from which he's renewed me. Rescued and renewed from guilt to grace to gratitude, from sin to salvation to service, from misery to mercy to mission. And that right there, friends, is the story of the Bible from cover to cover, from beginning to end, from start to finish. And by the grace of God, it is or it can be the story of every person in this room. And, and that's our hope, and that's, and that's always our prayer, today and always. Wherever you are in that story, we're all at a different place in this story, but wherever you are in the story, we're so glad you're here this morning. And even more than that, God is so glad that you're here this morning. God only knows what's going on in your heart and in your life, and he knows what's going on in every heart and in every life. He's at work in everyone. Everyone among us here this morning, God's at work. And so if you ever want to talk or pray about how God is at work in your life right now, how he has been, how you hope he will be, and the joys or in the challenges and in the struggles, we're always readily available to spend that time with you, and I hope you'll reach out. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and if uh, any of you feel led to come and talk briefly and to pray briefly um, about whatever's on your heart today, 
I'd uh, welcome you uh, coming forward. I'm going to be down here on the floor on this side. Lori will be on the floor on that side. And we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. And as you come, if you come, I don't want you to be thinking about all these people watching you and looking at you and wondering why you're coming forward and all that. You know why? Because I'm asking all the rest of you who don't feel led to come forward to be praying for the ones who do. All right, we want to be a, a congregation that prays with and for one another. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. Thank you.